Good morning. Uh, it is the Old School podcast on educational uh, matters, all things related to the American education system and problems in it, possible solutions, and so far as we know the solutions. Uh, good morning, Dr. Bourgeois. Good morning, Mr. Miller, and welcome back to uh, God's country, Texas. Back to right? God's country, Texas. Yes, and don't uh, I don't want to hear anything from any of our tens of subscribers uh, from places like Delaware, you, you don't have a case. Okay. You know, um, I can assure you, we have no Delawareans or whatever the hell they're called. <laughs> it's the only state in the union that does not have a designated spot by the national park service. That should tell you all you need to know about Delaware. Wow. And I'm from Maryland and it's like a, it's like a common joke to make fun of people from Delaware or the state of Delaware. So. Well, so are we going to talk about Delaware in this episode? Is that where you're taking us? I could. I you, you would that. think that a state so <laughs> insignificant <laughs> and so inconsequential that you would have a hard time coming up with 30 minutes about a state like that. But I could come up with 30 minutes on a state like Delaware. I don't doubt it. I think you could pretty much opine on, a, on any <laughs> under the sun. <laughs> I'm good at ranting. I'm not as good as some, but uh, I can I can rant uh, uh, to a moderate degree. So that is what you do. <laughs> well, you know what day? You know what time of year it is? Uh, it's out there. Um, it's, it's out it, there. <laughs> it's like pitcher, pitchers and catchers report early, as do teachers. Yes, and so pitchers and catchers report started well for us starting next week. Uh, for others, I think somewhere around there. For at least here in Texas, I guess in other parts of the country, it's a little bit different. In other parts of the country, teachers are still being dragged, kicking and screaming back into the classroom. But um, but nevertheless, uh, the time is nigh upon us. And what does that mean, Dr. Bourgeois? Well, um, I, I think the the stark reality hits very quickly, really, right when they walk in the building. Oh, yeah, here we are. And they leave their lives behind and, and start once more, once more into the breach, dear friends. Exactly. But what they really want at that point for the next week or week and a half or how much time they have is to be left the heck alone and go to their classroom and plan and uh, call it good, you know, and then start. But that's not what happens. You know, they, they can't do that. <laughs> yeah. There's a little announcement. We'll be meeting together at eight o'clock until about four o'clock for the next week and a half. At uh, the beginning of last week, our, our assistant principal had already sent out a schedule of meetings. That's a good week before most people on the staff are even checking their email, which, you know, so, you know, good for him uh, to, to get that done, because I think that that's, that it's good to know what you're facing on the first day of school. But I mean, it's already, you know, the, the, the process, the rigmarole has started. And, and it will continue um, really once the, that first meeting is, it just has a, has a life of its own. I, I don't miss that at all. And, you know, I don't want to say there's a lot of empty talk in, in, in these meetings, but the, you know, I don't like these global comments, you know, that, that come out that, you know, here, here's our mission. You can memorize this mission and you get a cup, you know, to, to carry around with you, but, but mission statements and that, that level of conversation, I know you need to be on the same page and I'm all about collective teacher efficacy and sure. But, but, uh, you know, I, th I, I think it needs to be real. And, and there, there's just this, 
in disingenuousness that you know I'm sensing. I, th I think most teachers are really perceptive and they get it too, and that's what kind of turns them off during during those meetings. So they start wanting to be, you know, empowered and fired up about the year, and then it kind of gets drained out of them. Just just uh, this sucking feeling slowly. The great uh, sucking sound. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Going from blow to suck. <laughs> so I guess great, so. Great comic Mel Brooks once wrote in uh, Spaceballs, I think. Quoting okay. <laughs> <Right>. Spaceballs. <laughs> well, but I don't, quoted I don't, Nietzsche, so. No, we can do that too, but I, I don't like it. I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts on just that type of motivation for a teacher to start the year? Well, I, I think it's... Um, and we've we've kind of hinted at this in the past, but I think I think it's a very difficult task for our school leaders to to kind of navigate, right? To try to find a way to come up with something that doesn't sound contrived, that does not sound, um, yeah. And the, the the other problem that makes it worse is that there there certainly is a lot of teachers that are um, that are cynical. And so anything that you come up organic or otherwise is going to be scoffed at. And, you know, it's, you know, and it's usually by those uh, veteran teachers that think themselves too, um, too seasoned for this kind of shenanigans, you know, like us, like us. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd like to think that, I mean, I can understand, I, I can at least get what the person is driving at. And I can, you know, because as you say, there is something to, a kind of a coordinated concerted effort by the staff, you know, and there's something to uh, the effectiveness of a staff that can get behind a certain kind of idea. I think though that, you know, from a school leadership point of view, it is hard to find that in such a way. I mean, I, I wonder if this goes back to our earlier discussion about needing to have an elementary school teacher on here, but I wonder if it's easier at the elementary school level, because it seems those those folks are more game for it. Whereas the high school folks, I think they see it as something for the younger crowd or for the younger scene, you know, the elementary or maybe like the intermediate school before middle school. I don't know. I it's it seems it seems like something for an earlier phase. And I think that's one of the reasons why some of the older teachers tend to scoff and guffaw at the efforts. Well, there's just something about um, elementary teaching that I would expect where they have work to do, mm. you know, and, and which means that they need to collaborate and they need to be working towards a, a shared goal. And, and mm. whereas at the high school level, to some extent, but it's really more theoretical because when it comes down to it, you're in your discipline and you're doing what you do um, right so but but uh, every year you know you're out outside of the classroom outside of a school building i think you get a little bit more cynical still mm -hmm. looking back on it and you, you rarely look back and say boy that was really a great meeting it really focused me for the year and it, it mm -hmm. made a big difference thanks <laughs> it hasn't come up i wanted that i want to reclaim the time that i lost it's interesting for a group of people such as teachers that are difficult to motivate I wonder what kind of task lies before them in their efforts to motivate their students. Um, you you would think that it's um, similar. I mean, they're using the approach that they that they have learned. Um, as, for example, imagine the the principal sets a goal, you know, hmm. a goal that's something that's measurable, and and if we attain this goal, 
I mean, really even related to the academic achievement of their students, um, we're going to have a party or, or we're going to give you a day off or we're going to all get funny t-shirts or the principal's going to, you know, they're going to throw water balloons at the principal, but something that's tied. It's going to be a, a dunking booth or something. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. But I, I could see that happening um, right away. You know, and that, because that because that's the same kind of motivation the teachers apply. So they're learning some practice, and then they, they, that's that's what they know. So they'll use that in the classroom as well. Well, this is one of the things that's going that is the the biggest challenge. It tends to by people who are not very good at it. It tends to be given up the quickest. You know, perhaps even the first week of school, and that is the idea how you motivate students. And 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 the question the question is. Should it even be our job to motivate? You know, you know, talk about the idea of what motivates somebody and how someone is motivated. And of course, you know, you look at the mission statement in a in a particular school, and that's always ripe territory for laughs and uh, criticism, uh, because a lot of those mission statements are they come across more political. And insofar as that's true, it comes across uh, meaningless, you know, empty words, empty suggestions, empty platitudes. And so, you know, the question is, you know, especially at our level, at the high school level, is there any hope of saving the motivational and curiosity uh, traits of our students at this juncture? What you said about motivation is... Um, telling because you know we're trying to actively motivate students and, and I think that the the approach that would really work is to allow students to generate their own internal motivation ideally from the subject matter um, but even a, in a mission statement that talks about fostering or more more likely creating lifelong learners you know I wish that they you know on every because it's on most district and school websites they should just put a just cross that out, line. <laughs> you know, line through it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and allow lifetime learning to emerge. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a little bit different, just the, the way that it's phrased, but of course we want that, but, but by actively doing it, I, I would argue that, that schools, meaning school leaders and teachers don't know how to do that mm-hmm. and from their actions. They're certainly working against creating lifelong work learners. Um, you know, on the contrary, they're, they're, they're shutting off learning gradually um i mean this the statistics i'm citing um looking at a, a longitudinal study of, you know year after year this these two researchers gottfried and gottfried 1996 they talked about or they assessed academic motivation of students and it's like this from up from the top to the right it's going downward every grade level um consistently and, and quite dramatically so students come to school ready to learn and happy and enjoying the content and, and, and gradually um, it gets squeezed out by, by mm-hmm. other, other things. So you would suggest that, that the practice of, of teaching uh, is actually not fostering lifelong learning. On, on the contrary, it's to uh, stop people from learning beyond if it's not on the test, right? Or they they pass a te- or they pass a course never to return to that content again. That seems to be the result of the mm-hmm. efforts. And it's interesting in conjunction with that, and certainly it goes hand in hand with that. The loss of motivation, but it is the loss of curiosity, and the loss of imagination, and the ability to think beyond certain concrete 
constructs, you know? So I'm sure you've heard there was a study that was done much the same way, a longitudinal study where they followed a group of kiddos and they asked at different grades, what could you do with a paperclip? And so in kindergarten and first grade, the kids are thinking, okay, you know, they think about a paperclip. They do not think about it in terms of the way we think about it, where we think about the little tiny silver thing that clips papers together. They think, well, what if it's 10 feet tall? What if it's made of wood? What if, you know, just they start coming with all these crazy ideas of what essentially is a paperclip, but in many, many manifestations of a paperclip. And then as the kid gets older, that kid loses the ability to think beyond the concrete and they they cease to be able to think theoretically they cease to be able to think in a kind of an expository kind of exploratory sort of way and you can't help but think that the loss of motivation is part and parcel to the lot the loss of curiosity and the loss of imagination that also tends to happen as you go from the very early grades and I'm desperately trying to hold on to that with my kid as she enters now the second grade this year. Um, but, you know, to see that kind of to try to see if there's any way to maintain the curiosity, to maintain the imagination in conjunction with hoping to maintain the motivation. Because if they have that curiosity, if they have that desire to explore, the motivation is going to be there. That's an interesting example. And I think. Well, the, the theory that I use in, in a lot of the research I, I conduct is called self-determination theory. And their idea is that humans are inherently interested in their environment, manipulating, learning, exploring. And what we're doing in terms of parenting and, and teaching uh, tends to undermine that um, in, in a subtle way, but consistently um, year after year. And so I think when we talk about motivation, students are very motivated in your in your school. It's just a different type of motivation. And so they're they're motivated to, you know, extrinsically, you know, to to get good grades, to please their teacher, to get into college. So the level of motivation hasn't changed, I don't think, but it's just the quality that goes in the direction in the direction of that motivation. That's right. It's it's always going beyond outside. Hmm. Um, it's instrumental to do something else. Whereas those children you, you mentioned, I mean, they are there, they're present, and, and it's a fascinating topic right from the start. And, but, but we're doing something in school, and obviously we're going to talk about testing and other, other things mm. that we do, but we, we seem to be working very effectively at reversing the, the quality of motivation. I mean, what, what more could we do than we're doing? You know, could, right. <laughs> you know, if we had planned this, we could not have planned it any better. Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're knocking it out of the park. Um, There's no way we could have done this if we had planned it, if we tried to do it. That's right. Um, <laughs> but, but I, I think we, we need to identify some of those uh, factors that are, you know, helping students lose their quality mm-hmm. of motivation, you know, just to, name a few. I mean, you mentioned your daughter who's moving to second grade. That's when it starts, you know, at least Mm. in Texas. I mean, the first test is coming up in third grade. So second grade really matters and they're going to start to ramp things up a little bit. And then once in the third grade, you get that first test and they, they, they start to realize, Oh, this is important somehow. I mean, I remember my, my daughter's first star test. It, It wasn't important. I mean, she just was kind of enjoyed solving these these problems it was math right and and to brag a little bit she she was one of the few i'd ever heard of and probably 
to get a hundred percent on her, her third grade star math, her first math. You know, I've, I've just revealed her, her test scores and, and FERPA will be after, after, after <laughs> me now. Uh, is that FERPA? Um, public records. Uh, HIPAA, FERPA. Yeah, it is FERPA. FERPA is FERPA. going to hunt me down. <laughs> but her response was that, you know, she, she enjoyed the challenge and, and she just took her time and, and thought it was fun mm. solving the problems. But eventually we started attaching sticks to the, to the tests and, and then you get tests in the in the class to prepare for the other test, and and so testing and grading are my two suggestions. Mm. We start to evaluate. There's a there's a huge difference, you know, when you're doing something for the fun of it, and and if you're doing it for money, you know, right. for a grade. So I think we're we're paying kids um, for something that they might be enjoying anyway. It's interesting. I think about um, think about the idea of motivation. Think about the idea of curiosity. And I'm reminded of what I see as the threat of curiosity. I'm reminded of an old skit that George Carlin used to do talking about growing up in Catholic school. You know, they would have heavy questioning time, you know, where, you know, the priest would come in and the kids could ask any kind, you know, uh, yeah, Father, can uh, God make a rock so big that he himself can't lift it? You know, that's where, you know, it, it would become, it'd become like a silly thing like that. And then he said, the problem is, though, is that the questioning led to doubt. And that's when the Catholics figured out we can't do this anymore. And I wonder <laughs> if the push for curiosity uh, at some point gets to a point for teachers and to administrators and schools to become unmanageable. Well, we can't have these kids questioning all the time, every single thing because then we wouldn't be able to get anything done. And I make that remark because it, it has been a problem with my kid. I have always encouraged her and her mother has always encouraged her to ask questions. But after a while, she starts asking more pointed questions to justify our actions relative to her. And as a parent, that might feel uncomfortable, but to, to, to quash that would seem to be the first step in quashing the curiosity. If you can't defend your own actions, that's a problem. And I think that I think teachers run into that. I think school administrators run into that. And I think that's one of the reasons why curiosity is both encouraged, but also curtailed as the kid gets older and as the questions get more pointed and as the accusations behind the questions get more personal. I think that that could be part of it. I don't know. Thoughts? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that the questioning of, of a child uh, shifts at some point, um, mm. but but we we love it, but we also find it annoy annoying on a certain level because we're having to justify eventually our behavior toward them. <laughs> and it's like your your daughter is a member of Miller and Miller Associates at Law, something <laughs> like that. Um, but but when you're running a, a classroom, you know, and, and you get questions that are a little bit off topic, because to, to pose a, a really good question related to a subject, you know, implies a certain level of knowledge and intuition and sensing the room and where you're going. And, you know, kids, students at, at all ages tend to get off track with, with mm. questions. Sometimes they do it in, uh, intentionally to move you away and, and buy themselves some time where they're not... Um, on, on topic, but but let me jump ahead to university because you know the, the same thing happens even at the doctoral level. You know where, where people will get you off topic, and then the rest of the 
class kind of size and say, okay, let's see how the professor gets back. But this is a little bit out of the way. But to say one more thing, I'm saying a lot on this, the um, what you get with, with students um, in high school, younger, and even in doctoral students is procedural questions mainly. You know, mm-hmm. tell me about the test. Do we need to learn this? Do we need... That doesn't stop. And so those, to me, that's not questioning, but it's it's trying to help them get what they want, which is the grade. And it really never changes. I mean, it's uh, debilitating when you're a professor. You, you've done this. You've talked through your, your syllabus and then all these questions are about the grade, the grade, the grade. Right. Um, so, well, I was going to bring that up because, yeah. you know, yeah, because, you know, the idea that, first of all, students know the teachers that are prone towards or fond of tangents, because uh, there certainly are teachers that like to hear themselves talk. But I think also, whenever you do open house, you understand immediately the questions that you get from the kids, because it's the exact same questions that the parents will ask. And you'll sit there. And I, and I will sit there and I'll say, you know, my class, you know, is about this, 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 and this, and it has this element, which is quite different from other classes. And it is not about the philosophy of the methodology that I use in the class. It, it always comes back to what does that look like on their grade? You're talking you about know? parents, 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 yeah, parents, parents in open house. And, you know, yeah, I remember the kids that. don't, kids don't usually ask questions, you know, they're usually forced attendance attendees, you know, on these things, but they very seldom ask questions. The parents will ask questions, but the parents will typically ask questions about things that they could look up and find themselves. You know, what is the, what percentage of your greatest test or, you know, what is, what is the policy of makeups, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so the the as you say, uh, the questions tend to be formulaic. The questions tend to be about procedural things and not really about the idea of learning or the idea of of, of trying to understand a, a topic such as history. Oh, we'd we'd hope that there's a, a pure pursuit where adults don't get in the way. Um, I mean, for example, <laughs> you know, a, a kid like your daughter is very interested in in, in a certain topic. You know, looking at a history of a hmm. and and if you start not just posing questions, but providing a, an exam. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that that would shut shut it down. I mean, I mean, I think about music lessons, and you know, and I obviously I'm a pianist, and I. Uh, but there was no. I mean, the only test was the. It wasn't even a test, but you performed in front of people, mm. uh, and and every week you performed in a way in front of your 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 teacher. Um, mm. But once they start trying to add on top of something that was really joyful. I mean, I've, I'm sure I've told you my story about practicing the piano. Do you remember that story? I I have seen, I've heard many stories. I, which I do which tell one story. are you referring to? Well, it was in seventh grade. I, I played in the orchestra. I played violin and I also played piano. So I was their accompanist, but I, I'd played violin since first grade. So I, I did both. No fooling. Yeah, no fooling. Huh. So I was okay. a little Suzuki violin. I'd carry my little case and, um, but uh, but I was better at piano by, um, pretty quickly, but I did both. Actually, I played both all the way through high school. Um, so every week we would sit around on a, on a, on a Friday in our, in our circle and we would talk about our practice during the week. And we were supposed to keep track. Hmm. My teacher, Mrs. Blankenship, would take, take it down and it would supposedly go into your grade. You know? hmm. And so students would count it up and, and they would say, how much? 30 minutes this week. Okay, got it. Uh, 20 minutes. Oh, I didn't practice at all. 25. And then they would um, come to me and I, I added, added up and I would say, well, there's 
three hours, four hours. These are days, you know, so, <laughs> uh, 20 hours. And they would just freak out and start applauding. I'd get standing ovations, but I was practicing that much. And I wrote right. it down in a little notebook. And, um, and so I was getting like this double payment, you know, the, the music itself, but also accolades. The adulation. Um, and then on top of that, you know, there was a period where my dad uh, would pay me, you know, by the hour. It was a certain, I mean, for a middle school kid or junior high at wow. that time, that was a big deal. And I don't know how much it was an hour, but it was probably enough. My dad was pretty generous. So he would, <laughs> and so I was collecting some bucks for that too. So it was like doubling down on the practice. And uh, we did that for about a year. I made some money. Uh, but mm-hmm. eventually I, I said, you know, dad, <laughs> I really en- enjoy playing the piano and, and this is what I love to do. And, and you don't need to pay me. Um, because, and that, I mean, I, I think that was a pretty mature thing to say, sure, and I, yeah. and I, probably a horrible mistake. Cause I could have made a lot of money <laughs> through high school and college. Um, but there was something that rubbed me the wrong way about that, you know, and, and maybe I don't know what, but, but very complicated because you have the joy of what you're doing. You have the public, you know, adulation, and then mm. you have money. So mm. you're getting these different messages. And and to me, the the activity itself should should be enough. Well, you you brought up my daughter's um, interests, and I may I may have mentioned it before. You spoke you. about it in general terms, but um, but she has since the beginning of the quarantine last April had it uh, not last April April right twenty twenty. She has had a remarkable fascination with ancient Egypt, and I have provided her resources. And I have provided her opportunities to explore it, but I've tried very hard and I've been very deliberate in trying not to undermine the curiosity because I fear that if I did something that would cheapen the pursuit of knowledge, that it it could scuttle her interest in the subject, you know? And so, you know, for me, you know, it's the same thing with baseball. You know, I take her to baseball games and I want her to be interested in baseball, but at the same time, I don't want to kind of force the issue. She'll either like it or she won't like it. You know, Uh, that's me trying to, you know, trying to (laughs) juxtapose my interest in baseball into my daughter. If for no other reason, but I have someone to go to baseball games with when I get older. But, you know, you know, those kind of things, you know, if it comes from me, she'll either get it or she won't get it, but I'm not going to lose sleep either way. You know, I, I'm grateful that she isn't interested, that she is interested in some of the things I'm interested in, but particularly those things that come from her, you know, I feel that my greatest, my greatest act is to not get in the way, you know, Um, and to not allow anything else to enter into the paradigm of her and her interest in ancient Egypt and her desire to, um, to study about the gods and the goddesses and the pharaohs and the pyramids and all this other stuff. And she talks often about the idea of being an Egyptologist, about living part of the year in Egypt and part of the year in Fort Worth and uh, in North Texas or what have you. Uh, but, you know, the idea that, um, that she feels that she's already kind of making plans and I'm like, okay, you know, but at the same time, trying not to intervene or to interject, you know, put myself into her pursuit. So 
I mean, it's really difficult uh, as a parent because you want to just jump in and impose yourself and, right. and, and, and then it shuts down. It's, it's, it's fragile. I think Montessori, you know, Maria Montessori uh, appreciated that. And she had a, a saying that you should never praise a student when they are um, completely focused uh, on some activity and because you will break the spell. Right. And breaking the spell happens quite often in, in, in schools. You know, right. I, I think as soon as you mentioned the, the test of the reward, that, that does happen because you're suddenly imposing the adult's goals on them instead of their own. Um, this is why teacher. This is why teachers have an uphill battle in the classroom, as far as being able to instill motivation, to be able to instill curiosity, because everything about the structure of the class, everything about the dictates from above, as far as administration or what have you, undermines that because of the idea of the test and because of the idea of grades and what have you. You are completely surrounded as a teacher. You are completely surrounded by things that undermine the notion of a pure exploration of a subject. And perhaps it's unrealistic and it's uh, you know, pie in the sky thinking that, that that's the kind of experience a kid might have in the school, but it has been done before, you know? And I, I and to me, it's, it's, it's just this constant conflict between people, between teachers who want to see more genuine engagement with the subject that they teach. And then the, the rigmarole surrounding them that demands all this other stuff. Well, we started out with the, the teacher and talking about teacher and service. And I think the, the teacher uh, is confronted with, you know, three forces, you know, they're being controlled that, hmm. because the, their outcomes are our student performance. And, and so they're, they're getting it from parents, you know, who, like you said, all about the grades from administrators, all about the test scores. And then even from the student themselves, uh, as they get older, you know, if you teach AP, you know, it's about all about you getting them what they want. Class standing college. and so yeah. like that. Yeah. Rank, yeah, you get incredible pressure on grades. You yeah. know, you, you know, Mr. Miller, my ranking is going to drop from number 14 to number 11 because of the grade you just gave me on that test. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's one of the reasons why, and, and people think I'm being a bit of an, a jerk about this, but I mean, you know, the, well, I probably am, but you know, the first couple of days of school, I say, listen, one of the things you should know, if you come up to me and the first thing out of your mouth is about how close or how far away you are from a particular grade, I don't want to hear it. Now, if you're, if it's a question between failing and not failing, then you and I can have a, a substantive conversation about how to get yourself to where you want to be. But don't talk to me about the fact that you're one point away from a B or that you're one point away from an A. I'm not interested in that conversation. It's not interesting to me. It has nothing to do with my raison d'etre, as uh, some pompous people might say. <laughs> well, we've said that a few times. And, and, and I, th I think you're a beacon of restraint in a world of car crazies. You know? <laughs> because I, I would expect that you know, maybe other teachers wouldn't even say that. Right, and they, and they try, but the pressure is is great. Mm. And and I mean, you've had the conversation with the vice principal who looks at um, how how students are doing, and maybe a specific student who might be in uh, football or something. Mm. The pressures are are there, and I, what I'm saying is that it kind of translates downward from the administrator and the parent to the teacher, and then and so they take a controlling approach. To students as well and it's just behaving predictably everybody in that but the 
people who get lost in that are, are the, the students. Mm. Well, it is once more, as I said, once more into the breach, we're going back into the, into the arena and uh, we're going to fight that fight starting next week uh, for some teachers, um, others, maybe another week or a week and a half or what have you, but um, uh, the, the fight continues. Well, we've been pretty pessimistic, but uh, <laughs> it, it's good. It's good, right? Teaching. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's good. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> Are you thinking about that scene from Diner? I am. Yeah, he's talking about marriage. What about marriage? It's good. It's good. You know, we can always talk about baseball. You know. Well, so no, I mean, I think yeah, I think it is pessimistic, but at the same time, I think I think if we could somehow trigger the conversations, because at the very least, I want the conversation. You know, it, it may get nowhere, but I want people to know that we're going nowhere with this. I want people to know that while we may not be able to change things, we understand that this is not the best way to go. You know, and maybe the realization can prompt change. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> but it makes for good talk. That's for sure. That's for sure. So I appreciate it, Herr Miller. Well, I'll, I'll be the first. I will say, Auf Wiederhören, Auf Wiedersehen, and have a good week, sir. Reichfalls, Herr Dr. Bourgeois. <laughs> <laughs>